continuing our series this morning from the book of Revelation, uh, letters from Patmos. And uh, last week we started off this series, and uh, these are the letters uh, that Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor. And if you missed last week's message, you can go out to myfamchurch.com and it's there. You can also get the Fam Church app, and our, the, the audio as well as the video messages are on the Fam Church app. And so you don't have to do anything special. Download the app on your phone, and you can catch up on what you missed. But in chapter one is where we started last week of Revelation. We're, we're looking at chapters one through three. And uh, in chapter one, what we saw was a couple of things. And we've kind of already talked about the things that we saw last, uh, that we talked about last week. We already talked about them this morning. But the first thing is, is we ask every time, you know, we, people come into church and they say to themselves, man, I wonder if Jesus is there. I wonder if Jesus is present. And the first thing that we saw last week in looking at the first chapter was this, is that doesn't matter where you're at, who you're with, what's going on, if there are people, if the church of Jesus Christ is gathered, he is there in their midst, okay? He is walking, he is moving, he is part of whatever gathering. And then the second question, uh, or the second thing that we saw was this. Not only is he there, but he is also speaking when he is there. And so when we come into church on a Sunday morning, we don't walk through the doors saying to ourselves, geez, I wonder if Jesus is there and if he's going to say anything to me. We walk through the doors instead saying, you know what, Jesus is going to be there this morning and he is going to say something to me. And when we have that expectation in our hearts, when we have that expectation in our minds that Jesus is going to speak, something incredible happens. Jesus actually speaks. And that's what we saw last week. When we come in with that expectation, Jesus will speak to us in the worship. Jesus will speak to us in prayer. Jesus will speak to us through the message that's given that morning. And so with that review, let's move on to this week. And this week we're going to be in chapters 2 and 3. And if you're familiar with where Revelation is at, or if you're not familiar with it, uh, I'm sorry, if you're familiar with it, you can turn there. If you're not familiar with it, it's the last letter in the New Testament at the end of the Bible, so just go to the end and start paging backwards until you see Revelation. You're going to run into it sometime there, and uh, we're going to be in chapters 2 and 3. If you're saying to yourself, I don't have a Bible, I don't know how to do that, I don't know how to access it, don't worry, we're going to have it on the screen behind me so that you're going to be able to follow along uh, with any of the texts that we have. And this morning... I'm not going to be reading a section of scripture and breaking it down. Instead, I'm going to be taking individual verses out of these two chapters and talking about them individually. Now, I know those of you that have been to a preaching class, that is the ultimate sin right there. You're not supposed to take one verse out of context and speak on it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, and, uh, and so I'm uh, breaking all the rules of preaching this morning, uh, but, uh, but what we're going to do is, and I found this interesting, was that in my studies is, is that uh, in these uh, letters, the first thing that Jesus does in each one of the letters is he introduces a characteristic of himself, something about who he is to the church in order to deal with the situation that the church is facing there. And I, I, I hadn't noticed this in all my years of reading Revelation, it wasn't until I I started looking through a commentary and some other resources that I was using to, to get this message that the commentaries actually pointed this out to me. And so, and so Jesus is going to, we're going to see some characteristics of Jesus this morning. Um, now before we dig into that, I just want to address one more issue that comes up with Revelation and Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And it's this. 
What do we do with these letters? Because what some people like to do with these letters is they'll look at them and they will say, this is not for anyone except for some future church. This is some prophetic letters that Jesus was writing. Jesus wasn't intending to write to the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and the other churches that we're going to look at. He was writing to some future church. And there's one problem with viewing, well, first of all, when you view it that way, what you're saying is that Revelation is actually a prophetic book. And as we talked about last week, Revelation is not a prophetic book. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. And so it's a little bit different. It's very symbolic. It's very, it's, it's just different than uh, 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 a prophecy. And so when we look, if we look at Revelation as a prophecy, then we'll look at those first seven letters to those churches as prophecy, but they're not intended to be prophecy. Because if you take and you break down the church age, which is what they'll do, they'll go through and they'll look at, okay, this is the church age from zero to 100 AD, and that matches with the first church, and you know, 200 to, and they'll go back and forth like that. The problem is when you do that, is it doesn't line up. Okay, the problems that the church had don't line up with the problems that are listed in the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, okay? And, and so that's the first thing that goes on there. Uh, the second thing that goes on there is that a lot of these things are very general and can be applied to any church at any given time in world history. Okay, and so, and so looking at it like that and seeing it as some prophetic word given to a church at some future time, it just doesn't hold up. You can't do that. It doesn't transfer over just because of various issues, problems, and complications. And so these are letters to specific churches, and these specific churches and the issues that they're facing, what's going on can be applied to our situation and circumstances here in the church today. All right, so moving on to what we're going to look at today, let's talk about letting people into our world and seeing who we are, seeing our character. We don't let people into our world very easily, do we? We're kind of guarded when people want to find out about who we are, about what we're about, about how we're doing things. We kind of try and protect that. And we also kind of like to put our best face forward, don't we? I mean, if you go through somebody's social media account, how many people are out there putting the worst of the worst on their social media? Usually when people post something on like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, they're, they're posting the best things that are happening in their lives, right? They're posting how awesome their life is. They're posting how amazing their life is. They want everyone to see the exotic adventures that they go on. They want everyone to see the fun that they are having. They want everyone to see how wonderful their life is. One of the guys that I went to seminary with, that's the only thing he'll post on Facebook, okay? He'll like, if he's doing something awesome, like two weeks ago, he, he left his house, he flew to a different city to watch a baseball game, watch his favorite team play baseball, okay? And so that was all over Facebook. And if he's not doing anything cool like that for the next few months, you won't see or hear a word from him, okay? Then all of a sudden he's doing something fun and cool, and guess what happens? Suddenly his Facebook page lights up with pictures of his awesome, amazing life and the incredible things that are going on. And, and, and it's also that we would sit back and we'll look at his Facebook and say what? Man, I wish I had his life. Mine is so boring. But look at that life. But it's only the part of their, of the, their life that they let us see. 
We don't let them see the credit card payment that comes along with financing the incredible lifestyle that we post on Facebook, okay? It doesn't tell us about how we're one big happy family in the picture that's out there on Facebook, but yet when we're at home, it's like World War III and everybody's fighting like cats and dogs, you know? We don't let you see that that hot guy or that hot girl that we are with is really a psycho when, when you, you don't see their picture on Facebook, okay? We don't let them see that on that picture we're bundles of joy and smiling and happy and excited. But yet outside of those pictures, we never smile because we struggle with depression in life. See, we reveal what we want to people because of an image, because of a thought that we want them to have when they look at us. We want them to think we're a certain kind of person. We have certain sorts of characteristics. Well, with, with Jesus and his revealing himself in these letters, that is not how he operates. With Jesus, Jesus, the reason he shows certain characteristics, a certain part of who he is, is completely different. You see, Jesus reveals something specific about himself to these churches because whatever the church is going through, whatever is happening in the church, they need to know that Jesus, through the way he's revealing himself, is there to help them walk through the situation that they find themselves in. They need to know that the character of Jesus is perfect for whatever situation that they find themselves in. And see, the deal is Jesus still does the exact same thing today. When we've got stuff going on in our life, when we've got struggles and trials and battles that we are facing in life, if we allow Jesus to come and walk with us through those circumstances and situations, he's going to reveal himself differently at different times to us. One time, we may be struggling with depression and he'll be the one who will reveal himself as the, the God who brings joy. Another time we may be struggling with needing healing and he will reveal himself as the God who heals. See, that's how Jesus works. That's why he does certain things. That's why he reveals his character in certain ways. He wasn't hiding something. He wasn't showing something new about himself. It's been there the whole time and he just knew that at that time, in that place, you needed to hear that word, you needed to see that face of Jesus to make it through what you were going through. And that's what he did for the churches here in Asia Minor. And so let's dig into the text. We're going to start off in Revelation 2, uh, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1. And this is what it says in uh, 2.1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so if we're to back up a little bit into chapter 1, Jesus tells us in chapter 1 that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, okay? And so basically, what Jesus is telling the church here is that once again, he is present in the church. He is there in the church. He is walking amongst them. He is walking with them through everything that they are going through, and they don't have to go through this on their own. And last week, we covered this, and so I'm not going to go into any more detail than that, but the first thing that Jesus reveals to, uh, about himself is that he is there. There, he is walking, he is going through everything we are going through with us. It doesn't matter what it is, he's going through it with us. 
The second thing that Jesus reveals about himself is found in chapter 2, verse 8. And this is what it says there. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words who is the first and the last who died and came to life. So the character trait that Jesus is revealing here is that he died and came to life. Why did he have to reveal that? Well, there's two reasons that Jesus said this, okay? There's two reasons that Jesus revealed himself as the one who died and came to life. The first one is this. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the planet. You can look at every other religion, you can look at every other person who has ever lived, who has ever founded a religious movement, and we can go and we can find where they are buried, we can find the grave that they are in, but Jesus is the only one who has said, you know what? Death cannot hold me, the grave cannot defeat me, I'm coming out of there and I'm rising again. No one else can claim that. None of the other religious leaders can claim that. The tomb is empty. He is not there. He has risen. Only Jesus can make that claim. He's saying he's different. Okay, I'm different than all the other gods out there because I defeated death. And the second reason this is important is that knowing that information gives us hope. You see, if Jesus does not return in our lifetime, we're all going to die in here, right? We try and do what we can to stave off, to, to, to keep from dying. I don't know, do, do you guys know who Ted Williams is? A few people, baseball player. All right, his head is frozen in Arizona. Do you know that? Okay, this is the plan. This was his family's plan. This was his wish, actually. He asked them to freeze his head so that 200, 400, 1,000 years from now, when they invent the technology to thaw his head and attach it to another body, that he can be defrosted and come back from the dead. That's why Ted Williams' head is frozen in Arizona. Okay? We try to defeat death. Some of us, we do the best that we can. We'll eat sticks and twigs and, 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 uh, and weeds and everything else from the garden in order to avoid death. Can I tell you that if that's what you're doing. You're not going to avoid death very long. You're just going to go to the grave with a bad taste in your mouth. Okay? A steak tastes far better than sticks and twigs and all that stuff. And hey, I can, I can firsthand knowledge, okay, twice in my life I've done this Daniel fast. And if you don't know what that is, it's this thing based upon a fast that Daniel did in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament where he ate a vegan diet. And so I've tried this twice. I've done it twice. The last time I did it, my wife looked at me and said, you are never doing this diet or this fast again. Because I got so sick of eating vegetables and fruits and it was so boring that, that I just didn't eat. I'd go for like two days without eating. She'd say, why are you not eating? I'm like, I don't want to eat that stuff anymore. I want to eat something that tastes good. And I know I just offended all of the vegans in the room. I apologize. But we try and control death. We try and have victory over death. But you know what? It's something we can't conquer. But Jesus conquered death. And you know what that means? If Jesus conquered death, then that problem that we have in our marriage, if Jesus can conquer death, he can take care of that problem in our marriage. Okay, if Jesus can conquer death, 
He can take care of the financial situation that we find ourselves in. If Jesus conquered death, he can take care of the problems with your health, with your family, with your job, with your business. Because he conquered death, there's nothing he can't conquer. You see, in Christ, we can crush the problems of this world. But without Christ, the problems of this world are just going to crush us. Jesus died and rose again so that we can have the victory over those kinds of things. The third thing Jesus revealed about himself is that he rules and reigns in authority. This is one of my favorite verses, scriptures in the, in the entire Bible, okay? And this is Revelation 2, uh, 12 and 13. All right, listen. Now just listen to what it says and imagine someone speaking it to you. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. If somebody walks up to you and says, I got a double-edged sword, it's sharp, and I know where you live, what are you thinking? He's coming for you, right? At least it's a threat of some sort. I just find that humorous, you know, that, that Jesus just says, I know where you live. You know, he says, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, nor even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. But what Jesus is saying here, what he's telling Pergamum, Pergamum is, listen, I am the final authority. I have the double-edged sword. I am large and in charge, and there was nothing, there's nothing anyone else can do about it. And if there's a problem with that, don't worry about it, because I know where you live. I'm coming for you. Satan may have his throne there, but guess what? My sword is sharper. I'm more bad than any place Satan can think he can set up his throne. Now, I do want to clarify something, that when Jesus says he has a sharp sword, he's not really literally talking about a real sword, okay? Every time Jesus talks about having a sword, it's, it's the word of God. It's the words that he speaks. It's the, it's the, the scriptures within uh, the Bible. You know, he's telling them. He's like, look, I am the power. I am the authority. I have all power and authority, and there's nothing nobody can do about it, not even Satan. Satan can set up his throne wherever he wants to set up his throne, but guess what? I have power, I have authority, and I can take anything out I want to take out. Now let's talk authority for a minute. We live in a world where people draw authority from three sources. The first source is what they think. Well, I think. Have you ever had someone say, have you ever had a conversation like that? Or maybe you're talking with somebody and you say, well, Jesus says, and they say, well, you know, I know what Jesus says, but let me tell you what I think. Have you, have you had those conversations with somebody before? I mean, usually it's, it's like something like sex. You know, you're talking about sex and, and how God has defined it. And somebody's like, well, I understand what Jesus says, but let me tell you what I think about sex. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever thought something and been wrong about it? How many of you thought the... The, uh, that Santa Claus was real at one point in your life? Okay. How many of you thought that the tooth fairy was real at one point in your life? Okay. How many thought the Easter bunny actually hopped through your house? Okay. How many of you were right on that one? None of us were right. What? Some people still believe that? Is that what? 
Carol, do you? Okay, just making sure. All right, you have me nervous. But this is the thing. Just because we think something, I hope all the teenagers already knew this. I'm sorry. Tell your parents, you know what? Go home, tell your mom I broke the news about Santa Claus, and they can come call me later, all right? Um, but anyways, it's, it's a... We, we've thought things that were, we thought were truth at one point in time, but we were wrong. And just because we think it's true doesn't make it the truth. Too many times we do that with Jesus, and Jesus says something, and we say, you know what? Jesus may say that, but I think this, and so therefore, this must be true. We are not an authority. Our mind is not a final authority. What we think is not a final authority in this universe. A second place we take authority from is our feelings. You know, I talked about this last week, but I, and so I won't go over it again other than to say our feelings are very unpredictable and wrong, okay? Then the third place that we draw authority from is the culture that we live in. Our culture will tell us that the Bible, the scriptures that we are reading, they're outdated. They'll tell us that. But our culture has a tendency to be wrong as well. Our culture has done some crazy things that have ended up being wrong. Our culture... 15 years ago, there was this explosion of porn on the internet. And the culture at the time said that this was a good thing. Why did they say it was a good thing? Because of this. They said that it's allowing people to do their sexual stuff in their house with nobody else around, and it's good and it's healthy for them to do it. Well, now here we are 15 years later, and you know what culture has discovered? That it's not good, that it's destructive, that it's ruining lives, that it's leading to addictions and other things that are totally messing people up. Our culture is not an authority on truth. Okay, our culture does not have the bastion of truth that when they claim something is right and true, it's right and true. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the sword that will cut apart, that will destroy any other things that wants to claim that they have authority over him, including Satan. The fourth thing that Jesus reveals about them himself is that he is full of passion. Revelation 2.18 says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, so let's start first with the image of Jesus that we generally have in our head. This is what we think of when we think of Jesus, isn't it? Look at him. Look at his shiny, beautiful hair. Most of the women in the room, you'd be jealous. You're jealous because he's just got such pretty hair and his nicely trimmed beard. Any hipster out there would be jealous of Jesus's beard and he's got this Oh, this beautiful robe, nice, clean, shiny robe, and, and all the lambs and the doves want to hang out with them. And oh, Jesus, he's just such a wonderful and gentle and kind person. Now let's just think about what we just read. It says that he has fire in his eyes. Why don't we get fire coming out of Jesus' eyes in that picture? What does fire in your eyes bring to your head when you think about somebody having fire in your eyes? Men, 
when you have spent the last three days watching football, and for those of you, college football started up this last week. Uh, California and Hawaii played. I don't even know if it was televised. I guess nobody cared. But college football has started. And so you've spent the last three days watching football. And your wife comes into the room with fire in her eyes because the grass hasn't been cut, the oil hasn't been changed in the car, the garage hasn't been cleaned, and you've got all these dishes laying around you because all you've done is made a mess and eat. Okay, if she comes in the room with fire in her eyes, is it the nice gentle, is she coming in with her lovely hair flowing in the breeze? No! She's coming in there saying, you better get your butt up and take care of some stuff or we're going to have some long days here in the, coming, in the coming week in this house, right? It's passion. She, she's passionate. Jesus saying that there's fire in his eyes is saying he is passionate. There's a couple of differences, though, between Jesus' passion and the passion that we have. The first is that we all have apathetic days. But Jesus has never had an apathetic day in his life. He's never had a day where he woke up and he didn't care. He never had a day where he lost his passion for serving. He never had a day where he was not passionate about the church and his people. I mean, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, there's passionate stories about Jesus all over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The one that comes to mind that, that most people know of is the time that he went into the temple and starts whipping people and throwing over tables, okay? The guy in the picture up there doesn't look like a guy who's going to whip people and throw over tables. But Jesus did because he's passionate. He's passionate. But his passion is not a crazy sort of passion. You know the crazy passionate people out there, right? Jesus' passion is anchored. It says he has feet of bronze. That's telling us that he's got a firm, solid foundation to that passion that he's got burning in his eyes. So Jesus, when he comes to us and he's passionate and says, I need you to be passionate with me, his passions are solid and grounded and it's not going to make us weird and do crazy things like some people do when they're passionate. See, our passions change and can get misguided, but Jesus's cannot. The passion is going to be anchored in a foundation that is solid, not shifting, and completely reliable. The fifth thing that Jesus reveals about himself is that he knows all things. This is what it says in Revelation 3.1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. All right, so what's going on here? Well, here's the deal. From all outside appearances, this church looked alive. Looked alive. When people would talk about this church, it was the happening church in town. Things were popping. Things were banging. Things were going on. Things were exciting at the church. The, the worship was lively. The, 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 the pastor was passionate. There was just powerful things going on in this church. It was the place to be at. But when Jesus looked at it, he sang, they were dead. They were dead. Jesus knew all things, and he knew that beyond all of the glitz, beyond all of the glamour, beyond all of the flash, beyond all of the exciting stuff that they saw, there was deadness on the inside 
of this church. There was deadness on the inside of this church. It was a front. Imagine if Jesus had said that about your church, our church, walked in and said it was dead. But see, the more important piece of this is that even though Jesus knew they were not alive, he loved them anyway. He knew about their sin. He knew about how they were falling short. He knew about that there was no life there, but he loved them anyway. And some of us in here this morning, I think, have a fear. We have this fear that if Jesus really knew who I was, if Jesus really knew what was going on on the inside of me, if Jesus really knew the thoughts that I was having, the temptations that I was facing, the things that were going on in my life, he really wouldn't love me. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus knows everything about you? He knows absolutely everything about you, but guess what? He still loves you anyway. There's nothing that you can do that would change that. Jesus doesn't care what sins have your life a mess. Okay, he loves you anyway. Jesus doesn't care about the things from your past that haunt you. He loves you anyway. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Peter denied Jesus, denied even knowing Jesus. But yet Jesus came to him and used him to start the church and build the church up. Paul, the guy who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament, he, before he became a follower of Jesus, was killing people who followed Jesus. He was caught killing Jesus' followers, and Jesus loved him anyway. Do not let the struggles that you are facing keep you from the love of Jesus because he already knows about them, and he wants to be there to walk you through them, to bring you the victory, to bring you the life, to bring you everything that you're looking for. The sixth thing that Jesus reveals about himself is that he is the only way to be saved. Revelation 3, 7 says this, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open key of David, the way to salvation. It's the way to enter into God's presence. Jesus has opened the door to salvation, and it's a door that no one else can mess with other than him. And this is a hard word today, and this is a word that many people don't want to hear. Why? This word isn't politically correct. It's not politically correct to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I mean, you go on many of our college campuses today and they're declared safe spaces. Have you heard about this? What it means is that the school is a safe space. So any idea that somebody doesn't like, that somebody finds offensive, that somebody finds disturbing, that, somebody, that, that upsets somebody, that idea is not allowed on campus. And so somebody like Jesus is not allowed onto campuses like this because other people find Jesus offensive. Because he says, I'm the way to heaven. And they want to be kept safe from a crazy idea like that. But see, the deal is that Jesus doesn't, one, he doesn't care. 
But what is offensive about Jesus is this. He says that without salvation, through his name, people really do go to hell. Wait, but I'm a good moral person. I'm compassionate. I feed the homeless three times a week. I do all sorts of good things. I am a good person. Jesus says, no, you're not. Unless you have given your life to me and gone through the door of salvation, there's nothing good about you. And that's offensive. That's offensive to a lot of people. And the thought that Jesus would actually send someone to hell. Well, first, we've got to understand that people who are going to hell are going there by their own choice. They're choosing to reject Jesus and go into hell. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. A lot of people say, well, man, if the police were looking for me and my mom found out about it, she'd protect me from the police. She'd send me off to another country. She'd do everything. That's real love right there. That's not love. That's enabling. Love is not where we protect people from the consequences of their actions. That's offensive. Jesus is offensive. Salvation is offensive. But it is the only way to heaven. And if you can't handle being offensive, then Jesus is probably not the dude for you. And the seventh and final characteristic Jesus shows us is that he is faithful. Let's read Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. All right, so let's talk about faithfulness in here. How many of you in this room have started a diet or exercise program and quit within a week? Do we have any quit? people who quit? Yeah. Uh, how about the same day you started it, you quit? Do we have anyone who's, who's done that? Okay. It's hard for us to remain faithful to stuff, isn't it? It's hard for us to remain faithful to a diet, to exercise, to a spouse as the divorce rate in this country is, is so high. And so when we kind of move that over into our walk with God, we think, well, I struggle so much with being faithful, God must struggle with being faithful as well. He must struggle with the faithfulness of being committed to me, especially because when I look at my life, I know that I'm not doing the things that Jesus wants me to do. And we think, you know what? He probably wants nothing to do with me, and especially if we're somebody who's kind of said, you know, I'm going to walk away from you, God, for a little bit. I'm just going to kind of go over here, and I'm going to do my own thing. But see, then what happens is, we know that we've screwed up and we've gone and done our own thing and we look at God standing way over here and we say to ourselves, man, God is too far away. I've screwed up too much. He's not going to want me back. Can I tell you that God wants you back? We were maybe not faithful to Jesus, but Jesus is always going to be faithful to us. He's always going to be faithful to us. 
See, his faithfulness is not dependent upon how we act or behave. His faithfulness is dependent on his faithfulness. And so it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we've gone. The question is, can I come back to Jesus even though I've walked away? The answer is yes. I mean, all of us who are parents in this room, think about your kids. We love our kids, and if our kids had gone off and started doing their own thing and started getting all crazy and doing all kinds of weird stuff, would we just say, forget it, I'm done with them, I don't want to ever talk to them again? No, we still love our kids, and regardless of what they go through, regardless of what happens, we are going to love our kids. And Jesus loves us the same way. As a matter of fact, Luke 15 in this parable, it tells us that not only Does Jesus want us back? He's out there looking for us to come back. He's standing on the edge of his property with his eyes peeled, scanning the horizon, just hoping somebody who has wandered off, somebody who has walked away from him is going to come walking up that hill and across that horizon to come back home. And when they do, he's not just going to say, he's not going to say, what was your problem? What are you doing? Why did you make such stupid decisions? No, he is going to throw a party because we came back. That's who Jesus is is he is faithful we can never get too far from him now we still may have to live with the consequences of our decisions however he's going to be there waiting for us to help us and to carry us through whatever situation we have to go through so where are you this morning where are you are you struggling with one of these areas Do you wonder, God, are you speaking to me? Do you ever speak? Do you need a word of hope? Is there something going on and you just say, man, God, I need you to reveal yourself to me with a word of hope. Is there a situation that you need Jesus to show up in in authority? Is it passion you need? Do you need the God that knows all things to step into your situation and love you? Maybe it's the way of salvation or you need to have Jesus show up faithful in your situation. Or maybe it's another way. Maybe there's something else going on in your life. Maybe there's other struggles. Maybe there's other problems. Maybe there's other issues. Maybe there's other things. And you just need Jesus to come and show himself to you with a characteristic of who he is that will help get you through that situation and circumstance. Can I tell you, Jesus wants to show you the way through that situation. Maybe we need him as the healer. He wants to show up as your healer. Maybe we need to see him as a deliverer. He wants to show up as your deliverer. Man, let Jesus come. Let him show up in your situation. Let him show the characteristics that he has that can help you walk through whatever it is you are going through. Jesus is here. To show us that. Jesus is here to lead us through that. All you got to do is ask him and he'll reveal those characteristics to you.